I'm Garrett McQueen. I am the ever woolly Scott Blankenship. <laughs> I need a beard trim in a huge way, man. And this is Triloquy, conversations that challenge the status quo of classical music. Scott's feeling woolly today. Mm-hmm. All right. My, 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 I think we're all looking a little, you know, as, as the world begins to open up, um, a little prematurely, if you ask me, but as the world begins to open up and, and folks are starting to come back outside, we're, we're all seeing how, (laughs) how feral we look. And seeing everything that we bought on Amazon. Yeah. (laughs) I've, I've been, you know, actually Amazon put a stop to a lot of that, you know, because they were only really putting priority on the you know, the gloves and the masks and stuff. And for other things, you had to wait. And I didn't want to wait a week for my stuff. But I'm going to tell you, I got into Wayfair. Oh, okay. I, you know, that, that, that futon you're sitting on came from uh, Wayfair. Yeah, you finding some stuff? What else you found? I mean, all sorts of paintings, That both of those paintings. I, I got... I ordered so much from Wayfair, they gave me like a random $100 uh, <laughs> gift card. They were like, all right, girl, calm down. Okay, so between the stuff that you're getting on Wayfair and all the uh, music gear that they see in the background at my place, we should get some We should get some uh, corporate mentions for that. Yeah, this episode of Triloquy, this opus of Triloquy is brought to you by Wayfair. We've got just what you need. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway, let's um, check our accidentals. So last time um, we were talking about, you know, what we're continuing to talk about, the uh, the death of George Floyd and the uh, police brutality and the Black Lives Matter protests, all of that sort of thing. And I talked about how, you know, Governor Waltz and um, uh, Mayor Fry of Minneapolis, you know, I, I thought they were doing a pretty decent job. And, you know, I, I'm not here necessarily to take that back, but uh, we need to um, really, uh, you know, take what these politicians uh, are saying seriously. You know, all of the protesters and the organizers are really holding their feet to the flame. And it's kind of become uh, national news about um, Mayor Fry being dismissed, uh, I'll say, from one of these protests. You know, they basically asked him yes or no. Are you in support of uh, defunding the police? And he pause. had to say no. You know, there was a huge pause, too. And, you know, they just started booing him. He had a long walk of shame. They even started yelling, shame, 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 yeah, like in, that's like how in Game of you, Thrones. That's how long it was. Yeah. It, it, it was hard to watch. But, you know, I, I, I appreciate the organizers and the protesters really, you know, not being shy about, um, you know, really wanting to enact change and holding these elected officials to the fire. So I'm going to add a little natural there. I still think that... Um, they're doing a great job, more than I could do, but um, I'm sorry that I can't just 1,000% back him now because um, that is not really the answer that the crowd wanted to hear, and if I may be honest, not the answer that I wanted to hear either. Oh, say more about that. I'm interested. I mean, think about defunding the police and restructuring the system to where we aren't afraid or nervous if... Um, we're approached on the street or if we're pulled over, you know, think about that reality. Think of, think about not really worrying about the cops. If you happen to be outside with a joint or something, you know, that's, that's a reality I'm interested in. I mean, what if someone asked you that question about defunding the police? Well, in my neighborhood, people are not quick to call the police. They tend to try to resolve things on their own. And why, why do you think that is? Well, the, Old school East Siders uh, are 
notorious scrappers. You know, they they they, they know like, how to fight. They like to fight, and they're not. Uh, uh, you know, they would if they caught somebody getting into their car, like you know, a couple houses down, they've got an axe handle by the door, and they run people down. They don't. That they keep going after them. Street justice. Yes. So. Um, and that's actually, you know, that's an interesting point because um, something I read, I think, on Twitter or something earlier today um, was the idea that um, calling the police, you know, for help mm-hmm. is a privilege that not everyone has. That's the next thing that I was getting to. Oh, go ahead. That, you know, go yeah. Ahead. Well, because, you know, there's lots of black among uh, neighbors in uh, the I have no reason to believe that they have any uh, deep trust right now. So uh, especially while the lockdown was happening and all those curfews yeah. and all that sort of thing. Um, man, just gunshots all the time, helicopters, sirens, all that. Well, um, so anyway, that, that that's my quick natural. But um, my main accidental for um, this week was um, a flat. I watched something that that sort of fell flat for me, um, even though I had a lot of laughs, was the movie The Birdcage. Now, you were telling me that you're familiar with the play. Le Cage à Faux. Okay. Tell me about your, um, well, first of all, for folks, you know, um, who don't know that story, the movie or the play, basically, in a nutshell, what is The Birdcage about? Uh, it's about two gay men that are essentially trying to figure out how to tell their children that they're in a relationship. Oh, and happy Pride Month, by the way. That's why I brought this up. There we go. Well, well that's that's why. It, so it's Pride Month for June, you know, mm-hmm. in, in addition to um, Black Music Appreciation Month. So a lot of the channels are, are, are shouting out Pride Month with the gay movies, I suppose. So the birdcage was on as I was flipping channels and decided to just kind of stick with it. So, well, so you it, know, when it, but when it came out, when that film came out, that was on the edge because right. it was normally gay men, and it was normally the kids that were trying to figure out how to talk to their parents about it, not parents. Well, that and yeah, and, and that's why I'm bringing that up today. So as we, you know, as we're moving forward, talking about um, being anti-racist as a society and 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 trying to do better, it's interesting to go back and and see a movie like that that doesn't really, um, you know, uh, address race as much as it addresses. Um, sexual identity and how not that long ago, you know, you had a whole movie about code switching, basically, you know, that's what the movie is about, you know, one, uh, one or both of the gay men trying to come off as such and such for the rich, powerful parents who's, you know, their son is trying to marry and, and all of that. Anyway, uh, like I said, lots of laughs, but, um, you know, just kind of just did, did, didn't age well. And, yeah. and and when we talk about this, you know, I think about a conversation we had on, on Triloquy uh, way back when. One of those movies, they were in Ireland and they called themselves the the, the N-words of Europe or the, the black people of, yeah, of Europe, you know. Yep. Yeah, j- j- just how certain movies and certain things don't really age well. So I see that now, but also keep in mind that when I was watching that in my late teens, early 20s, it solidified something that I had already thought, which was you are never going to be as good at this as a black person. That's kind of what they were that, you know, it was um, you can try to be Aretha Franklin and Otis Redding and, and uh, James Brown. You're not going to get there, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was part of the, for me, that was part of the humor. I mean, I totally, I totally see what the the point that you made about it, but so, so, 
so so with that you know being said i'm wondering and 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 you're being a little older you know i'm sure that your opinions on things have you know have have shifted and 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 evolved mm-hmm. what 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 do you think are some of the just common things as we're trying to turn the page now um that that aren't going to age so well maybe maybe a movie that's out now or, or <laughs> oh, <laughs> a lot question. of stuff probably um I don't think the Transformers films are going to age oh, why, very well. Why that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just uh, it's just a bunch of noise. Mm. Um, I'm really looking forward to um, uh, you know there's there's some art being created right now. There's some things being written right now about the situation that we're in. Yeah, that's going to be some really powerful theater, um, some really powerful music. So some things that will age well. That will age well. Yeah. Uh, as far as what won't. Um, I'm maybe the office. Really? I mean, there's some, there's some semi-problematic things in there. And so, um, I mean, even the way they deal with sexuality, you know, the, the whole Oscar saga and all that, I mean, that would be a horrifying experience as, as far as being out and, you know, and, and HR, what in the show gives them three months paid vacation or, you know, to keep them from suing and all that. I don't know. Three weeks, three months. I thought it was three months. Oh, is that what you said? All right. So yeah. Then. Oh, yeah, because they went to Europe. They remember? went to Europe. <laughs> yep. Anyway, shout out to the office. Um, so anyway, happy Pride Month. Um, as as you go back and watch the old gay movies like The Birdcage. I don't know. I don't mean the shit on The Birdcage. Shit in The Birdcage. Because <laughs> um, I do. I, I got lots of like out loud laughs while watching the movie, you know. And, and I think I'd watched it all the way through kind of once before, but... Um, you know, kind of paying attention to what it was, you know, seeing the pastels and the electric lights of yeah. of uh, what Palm Beach. I, um, I would never survive. <laughs> Can you see me down there with this beard? It, it wouldn't quite work, <laughs> but you'd be popular at the birdcage, I'm sure. Mm, thanks. <laughs> also, okay, it. so you're not playing anymore. Okay. Appreciate <laughs> also, now you're serious. <laughs> Did you see my face? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so um, <laughs> what, 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 what you feeling this week as far as accidentals? Do you remember when you came in on Thursday and I really um, didn't have much to say? Sure. Because, man, we're having, I'm sure that every single um, Zoom meeting that you have right now with um, people in these largely white institutions, you're starting to have the conversation about what do we do to... um, and so, you know, and I'm, I'm hearing them and I hear other people talk about them and I'm going, what are we doing to be less racist? And, and I, you know, Right. And, and I'm just thinking this is, it's just, I'm one, uh, my, my biggest fear right now is if anything really can be done. If, if, is, is it too late? Is it too late? Well, what kind of, I, I, I guess this is sort of sharp for you. you you're having a sharp reaction to thinking about these things yeah um you know i was on a i was on a sort of digital panel um over the weekend and um there was this guy uh in there a a white man in on the discussion kind of mirroring some of the um things that you were talking about on thursday you know um really realizing you know that that in many ways you're a part of the problem it and what does it mean to be a part of an institution that is held up x y and z you know so he you know he he was this man was um voicing some of those things and talked talked about how when he rode in the car with his grandparents 
and they use certain language, how he never, um, you know, spoke up or, or, or never said anything. And thinking back, you know, how he feels that he was complicit, how he was no better than his grandparents using that language, you know, for not saying anything. We, we've seen the the protest signs that say uh, silence is violence, right? Right. So I, I wonder if there was some of that in there for you. There was. And, you know, if you listen to Classically Black podcast, Delaney talks about how, you know, she had her breakdown because everything was just piling up and stacking right. up and everything. And for me, it was just like, wow, okay, for okay, 30 years I've been announcing this music and sidestepping this. Or even in the last podcast where I said, I feel like my role is kind of like, hey, look over here, look over here. Wrong, okay? That, that, that's not the stance that I need to be taking. And it all stacked up. And I thought, I've, I've done this for 30 years. I have enabled this for 30 years, either out of my own ignorance or my own fears for people who had money. That's, what I was com- that's where I was landing. And so I didn't feel very, I didn't feel very good. Um, I felt one of the lowest that I felt in, in recent years. And you know that I go up and down with depression, you know. So um, Thursday was just a heavy, heavy night. I mean, nothing like Jacob Fry. They should have put him on suicide watch after that walk. I mean, I'm sure he went home and just took a nap. Oh, my God. After that, you just need to go lay down. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) After a whole crowd boos you and you have to walk away through the crowd. Through them. Yeah, Mm -hmm. look up the video. Y'all heard some of the audio at the beginning of this. But so, I mean, so when it comes to that, you know, first and foremost, you know, you're feeling that way. So you care more than a lot of people, you know, Um, what what kind of pulled you out? I mean, you're not feeling you're not seeming so down today. I have to sit with it. You know, I'm, I'm processing it. What, what can I say? I'm, um, I, I think that realizing that it happened is a big step. Yeah. Number one is just to go, oh, shit. Okay. I, because then once you see it, and you and I have talked about this before, as a white person, when I realize a little bit of privilege that I've got, just because you realize that you have it there doesn't mean that all the rest of it falls off. Yeah. Okay. It's, you're still going to find instances. Yeah. And I think that that's just something that I had to work through. And as a result, now I'm thinking about ways that I can begin to uh, transform my on-air presentation to talk about these things that, in a way that lines up with what people are used to from me. I mean that you know you you have a platform right, right. And, yeah right. and and y'all know how I give it up right uh, every night you know but what what if and and you know uh, you, you acknowledge once that between the two of us you know on you know it used to be three nights a week but but two nights a week half of the day is us right you know so what if half of the day folks were listening to classical music and hearing things that would, you know, click switches in their mind when it comes to the anti-racism that is, you know, that we're hoping to spread across society. You know, the, the, the opportunity is, is there at, at all times. Yeah. I'm, see, the, the way that I've been doing it uh, the last couple nights is just full-on acknowledging I'm not 100% sure yet how to talk to you about this. Um, but I've been pointing people to the seven uh, last words of the unarmed because right. there's a link through the website. So I'm pointing a lot of people there and also just talking about, you know, look up Joel Thompson. 
uh, and Adrian Dunn, like from the last uh, opus. Um, those are uh, low-hanging fruit, I know, but these are my first steps in in um, what I'm sure is going to be a lifelong a lifelong journey. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, your your work here is a uh, is, is I can the look on your face is like I'm not sure how to get us out of that one, but thank you. Well, you know, before we before we close out, is this still the opening movement? Oh yeah, it is. Okay, so before we 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 close out movement 1. You showed me a photo that you saw or a little thing you saw on Instagram that said um White, white tears, tears are, are violent. violent, you know, you know, the, this idea of the white guilt not really helping. Um, and, and even as far as, yeah, you know, so it's if you're not helping, you know, you're you're against. So, so I you know, down. A, a, as you've as you've continued to, you know, sort of think and process, what are your what are your thoughts on that on that idea now? White tears are violent. I forget what you said to me there in the studio that kind of subdued those feelings, but. Garrett, I have to, I have to say that right now I'm still stuck in a spot where I'm, I'm, I don't know what to say about it yet. Yeah, you know, it's still a logjam of ideas that I'm trying to process and come to grips with on my, on my own. Even as, even as someone who, you know, and with, and without, you know, trying to, trying to give you the good white person trophy, you know, in many of the conversations we've had on and off the mic. It seems like even, you know, since you were a kid, a, a teenager, there were certain things that you just did not do that, you know, have proven to have been on the right side of things. You know, the the, the, the way, you know, the high school girls were treated, the, the way folks would use the um, F.A.G. word, you know, oh, things man, like that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think it's good that. I don't know, you're at least thinking about it and, and not, you know, proclaiming yourself to have already, you know, have done what you needed to do and, you know. No, I'm not. I'm I'm not woke. I'm I'm about as woke as somebody who got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. That's that's how woke I am. But uh and, and you and you have to make sure you're awake, otherwise you uh <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and uh, we're back with movement two. Time for us to strike a chord. So, um, this week, Scott, um, it, it's it's really just something how everything works. So I'm gonna um, shout out uh, my friend Caesar Savetta. Um, he uh, lives uh, up in New York. We're working on an initiative up there, but we spent a long time on the line um, talking about you know. Uh, uh, Paul Robeson, who, mm-hmm. who I'm sure we're going to bring up on the podcast, you know, in the future. But, you know, a- another name that came up was Scott Joplin. And we talked a lot um, about, you know, how folks think of him as the light piano composer. But he was actually a serious composer, you know, wrote an opera that, you know, for all intents and purposes was just thrown in the trash. And, and no one really paid attention to Tremonisha until someone revived it and, you know, working on all that. Anyway, mm. but um, one conversation um that we kind of got into was someone who Joplin 
um, was kind of in uh, musical cahoots with. So these days, the um, the name a lot of people are saying is Derek Chauvin, right? You know, the 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 man who had um, his knee on George Floyd's neck. Well, um, Scott Joplin was uh, around a guy named Louis Chauvin. You know, it, it's something. Was how, it spelled the same? Spelled the same and everything, I believe. Yes, yeah, C H A U V I N. And um, it, it, it's, it's just nuts how, you know, um, you know, things connect in that way. So basically, um, we, we talked about this guy, you know, Louis Chauvin, who uh, played, you know, rags and light piano music just like uh, Joplin, but couldn't really, um, you know, read music or, or, or write it down. So uh, Joplin had to do a, a, a bit of that for him. So um, the, the, the famous story is that um, he, he was sitting at the piano playing this thing, um, but before, you know, his, his sickness, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, was, was getting the best of him. And, uh, you know, he couldn't play anymore. So, so Joplin helped him write down this piece of music that we now call the heliotrope waltz. And I didn't know what a heliotrope was. It's, it's a sort of flower. So, you know, that, that's, just, that's just what they called it. And, of course, with the flowers, you have your double entendres there and, mm-hmm. and you know, all, all that sort of thing. So um, if you're listening right now, look up and uh, read a little bit about Louis Chauvin. And his relationship with Scott Joplin was, um, you know, really interesting. And, 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 and you know, we're, we're talking about uh, Black Music uh, Appreciation Month. I think a lot of people know Joplin, but Louis Chauvin is another one of those names that, uh, we need to add into the Rolodex. But what I wanted your thoughts on, Scott. <laughs> so one of the fa- famous stories between Joplin and Chauvin was a piano competition they took place in. Um, they took, you know, they participated in that was in a... Um, What's the nice way to say whorehouse? A brothel. A brothel. Okay, I forgot. So it went down in a brothel, and it's actually syphilis that ended up taking Chauvin out, um, but but Joplin as well. You know that was sort of um, didn't the thing. everybody have it? I well, mean, so that, that's that's what I was going to ask you. You know, like we we uh, we we think of these composers as you know X Y and, and Z, but. We we never talk about the the more nefarious things that they've participated in. I mean, I do. Would you would you see your well? You you bring up those conversations on the radio. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you say such and such had syphilis. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and how does that connect? What what's your argument as far as that being an important part of you know the story or the music or whatever? Because I think that um, there is a tendency to think of people who have STIs as dirty or have unscrupulous uh, personalities, things like that. Uh, back in the day, you just had syphilis. <laughs> you just, I Not mean, everybody. Well, I mean, if you were, I mean, if you were having sex, chances, you know, chances were really high, but it was prevalent. Sure, you know. That's an inter- interesting point you've made. I-, I didn't think about it as far as um, sort of getting rid of the stigma. Um, Just say it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I'll, I'll have to approach it um, from that lane in the future because I, I tend to ask the question, um, would we have been, well, I wouldn't have been in those brothels. I, I don't I don't need to be close to anyone's heliotrope, but 
Um, <laughs> do you know. do you feel like you would have been hanging out in the brothel with Joplin and Chauvin and them? First of all, these were black establishments, so you had to have really been down. To <laughs> I mean, we cool now. I don't know if you would have been up in the what, what were the and, and you know they have fun names the the Shake Shack and the you know the piano uh, the, key. I don't know the Bunny Ranch. <laughs> But do you feel like you would have been in there in the um, in the brothels with all the other men in those days? Man, I probably. <laughs> what you want an honest answer, <laughs> or do you want me to you know try to make up something to make myself seem like I'm sweet? What I I don't know. Maybe okay. What it's it's possible. Do you think the uh, do you think all of those rags would have? Helped you get in the mood, I suppose. <laughs> it's just interesting that that music was in that setting, huh? And when we try to completely sanitize it these days, don't we? It's like like we do with like we have with everything else. Yeah. You know, do talk about Handel and Delius, right? With their oh yeah, I forgot I wrote that thing. Their, yeah. Their proximity to the slave trade, right? Mm-hmm. So what what are we missing if we just took them out of the library? Ser- I mean, seriously. And added in Louis Chauvin. And his heliotrope waltz, see? Good. Stuck, you know, pull other things out and stick him in. Okay, that's it for the double entendres. All right. <laughs> so anyway, so look up <laughs> Lewis Chauvin. Um, maybe we'll uh, actually uh, get into uh, movement three if we can find uh, a recording of the heliotrope waltz. Um, but but before this um, take a stand movement, so so far we've you know given a shout out to um, uh, Pride Month, and you know we're talking about uh, Black uh, Music Appreciation Month. So um, a couple, maybe about six weeks ago, um, I had a conversation uh, with a woman named Alicia Waller. She has um, a, a new album out called some hidden treasures um really beautiful music you know after you get done listening to that chauvin look up alicia waller and some hidden treasures we have a conversation about black music um her process its connection to um so-called classical um and 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 everything in there so um let's uh let's listen to a little bit um, of some old school black rags here uh, for a second, transitioning, leaving the brothel here, um, and and finding some different hidden treasures, some some more wholesome hidden treasures. There he is. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me here on Triloquy. Hey, Garrett. How's it going? It's going well. You know, you have a beautiful name. You share a name with my mother. So it's, it's especially uh, uh, an honor for me to speak with another Alicia. I am honored. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we were connected um, by your manager, Tim, and uh, and you're a part of uh, Innova Records. Uh, I don't actually think that um, I've talked that much about Innova um, here on Triloquy. For, from your perspective, what, what is it like uh, being a part of that label? Do, do you perceive it as being different than some of the others out there? Absolutely. Uh, one of the best things about Innova, I'd say, is that they make space for us genreless artists. Uh, that's mm. one of the things that they, they lean on and they advocate. Um, when I was going, you know, making the rounds to finding a home for my music, um, 
the fact that I kept coming back, I kept hearing, I don't know how to sell it. I don't know how to sell it because uh, everything tends to be so segmented. Yeah. Uh, especially with like American consumerism and music, especially. Um, but Innova does an amazing job of, of making a home or offering a home <laughs> to those of us that have no home uh, and are, are interested in exploring boldly. Wow, yeah, and, and shout out to, uh, again, to Tim for uh, connecting us. Now, you said a home for genreless music, uh-huh. which is <laughs> is really interesting. You know, most of the uh, folks and most of the music we talk about on this podcast fall under that classical umbrella. And I know that you have some classical training, but you wouldn't necessarily categorize your music as classical, or would you? No, I, I wouldn't. I... Um in part because of my my extremely strict training in classical music. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to call it that. Uh, of course, you know, the tonality, uh, it's a Western tonality that I'm playing with. Um, so there's an argument that it could be uh, defined as classical music. But to me, uh, what I'm making and what I'm interested in is soul music. Uh, and when, when kind of conceiving of the album and conceiving of the compositions, I was also very interested in jazz and Afro-Americana and also some global touches as well. So I would give it a home and soul because the heart is what is principally important to me. Um, And also give some credit to jazz as well. Yeah. So um, so with soul being the the principal, um, you know, genre that 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 you connect your music to. It, it it seems, you know, it, it goes without saying that blackness in your music is very important to you. Absolutely. How, how does that how does that um, manifest in, um, in in your process? How do you apply your identity when you sit down to think of a, a, a few lyrics mm. or, or try to put some notes together? Yeah, there's a there's a number of ways in which I um, am interested in addressing my identity as a woman of color in my music. Uh, of course, there's the lyrical component, uh, which I like to incorporate very subtly, um, but very intentionally. And then there's also the musical structure. Um, I was very interested in kind of incorporating just black harmonies um, and mm. black uh, the things that I, I grew up on, you know, uh, the bass line, a very strong rhythmic bass, and, and also vocally uh, playing with rhythm myself, falling behind the beat. Uh, that's a a very vernacular choice uh, to make uh, when singing music that is, you know, described as black music. Yeah. Um, and then what else? What else would I say? Uh, I mean, when you talk about falling behind the beat, you're yeah. reminding me of uh, something that uh, a couple of my teachers used to say, you know, having the courage to wait, mm. you know, <laughs> and, and, and not being right there on top of it. And that's definitely an integral part of black music um, as I see it. Yeah. And and, uh, and I would love to uh, jump in uh, to how that applies uh, to your latest project specifically. But um, before we get there, I want to address um, Black Music Appreciation Month. So um, when we had our little uh, pre-conversation, you told me that you um, actually hadn't realized that that was a thing. I and and as know. this 
Yeah, and and as this airs, you know, we're in um, week one of Black Music Appreciation Month. Um, Why do you think it's important to have this at all, apart from, you know, Black History Month in February? Yeah, you know, so part of me, I thought about this, and part of me wants to say that there shouldn't be a need for uh, African-American Music Appreciation Month at all, because, precisely because, the majority of music that is identified as American is rooted in black music. Mm-hmm. So yeah. part of me wants to argue that. But then on the other hand, precisely because of the nature of the way that black culture has historically been commodified and our ownership over that commodification has been erased consistently, it's important that we, that our ownership, that our our culture and contribution be recognized and that we have a space to point out the Chuck Berries and the Little Richards and and all of those, uh, the Ray Charleses that contributed so much that, you know, we might forget about when we're talking about rock and roll, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's so interesting that you talk about that that ownership piece and, and recognizing those who uh, laid the groundwork. You know, back in um, Women's History Month, I made a point to really shout out Sister Rosetta Tharp mm. because hers is a name that a lot of people just A, don't know, and B, don't necessarily connect to, you know, some of America's most American music, you know, that, that rock and that rock and roll sound. And, you know, you've already mentioned uh, Little Richard and, 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 and those folks. Um, I, I want to get into... Um, how you initially learned, even from a ch- uh, uh, f- from childhood, how to define that idea of of black music? Who are who are some of the first artists you can remember really spending time with? Oh, the music that my parents listened to. So that would be Marvin Gaye, which I would repeat three or four times. Just Marvin Gaye, Marvin Gaye, Marvin Gaye. <laughs> uh, Anita Baker, I loved uh, oh, yes. from a child. Yeah, I absolutely loved her and love her still. Um, my mother loves Bobby Womack, and by nature of sitting in the car with her, I love Bobby Womack too. I have played some of his songs to death. Um, those those would just be a few that I can name offhand that inform my my musical identity. So, where along the line did um, classical vocal training happen? How how, how did that happen? Oh yeah. <laughs> So the, the honest answer is a scholarship happened. <laughs> oh, amen, amen. Uh, and I, uh, I took myself to school. I figured if I didn't like it, I would um, switch out, and I loved it. Uh, but once again, it was a black voice that really captured my attention. It was Leontine Price, uh, the final aria that she sings in Madam Butterfly. Mm. Um, she is singing to her son, and she's singing about the father that she, that her son will never know. Uh, and it's uh, right before she's going to take her own life. Uh, and I listened, I honestly listened to that probably 80, 90 times in the one evening, evening because I couldn't believe that that was possible with a human instrument. And I couldn't believe the sound, how much passion could be derived from an orchestra. Now, that's a really um, you're making me think about some really interesting things, because obviously Leontine Price is one of the pillars when it comes to that intersection of race and classical music. But, you know, you're mentioning Madame Butterfly. You have a, a black woman singing 
music by an Italian composer that takes that is supposed to take place in Japan. I, I wonder if that sort of cross-cultural nature is something um, that you think about or apply to the creation of your own music these days. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I am very, very interested in music from various parts of the world. I choose to say vernacular music. It's hard sometimes because we're all very accustomed to world music as a term. Um, but I'm very interested in what makes the soul of a people tick and how that's expressed musically. Uh, so I do do a great deal of listening and um, natural incorporation. I think that there's a fine line between cultural expo- exploration and enjoyment and appropriation. Absolutely. Yeah. As I say, it's a thin line between uh, collaboration and uh, tokenization. Oh, yeah. um, but but when we talk about, you know, the um, the global nature of music, you know, and, and, and how these different vernaculars uh, can can mesh and blend and create something new. You know, blackness is global and, and the sound of black music is is global. Are, are there connections there specifically that that you can find between, I don't know, the the instrumental music of West Africa versus Afro-Cuban music versus the soul that that is foundational? To, to your experience? Absolutely. I'm, so I'm very interested in investigating the relationship uh, between music of the African diaspora. That is something that I hope to investigate even further. I think the obvious places where we can point um, would be rhythm and uh, syncopation, the use of syncopation, tonality. Uh, but I'm interested in more questions, deeper questions like the call and response. Is that, is that something that comes from a kind of genetic memory? Um, or is that something that they just all happen to have in common, right? When you listen to an Afro-Cuban music, there's that call and response. When I listen to a Fela Kuti, uh, West Africa, there's a call and response. When I go to church at home, right. <laughs> there's a yes, call exactly. and response. And I'm, I'm interested in, in, in finding that meeting point and looking at uh, where it comes from at a deeper level. I wonder if you could go more into that phrase you just used, genetic memory. What, 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 do, what do you mean by that genetic memory? Uh, the things that we, we, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll go back. I went to uh, Africa, the continent of Africa for the first time. You went to time. the motherland. I went to the motherland, yes, for the first time last year. And I went to Kenya. Uh, and I was so, I was anxious. I was excited. I felt a world of feelings. And I'll never forget sitting down and having what appeared to me to be uh, soul food. You know, I had my rice, okay. I had my collards, <laughs> I had my seasoned vegetables, I had some good You chicken. said seasoned. Yes, seasoned. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, and, I, and I'm sitting there and I'm eating it and I'm, it, it, you know, there's, there's, there's so much that we, uh, we say, oh, it's southern here in the U.S., oh, this is soul food. Right. But clearly there's something that we remembered. Clearly there's something that was passed down. Uh, So I think a similar thing happens musically. Um, These things that we remember uh, that maybe it's an oral history, but at some point we just feel it. Why do I listen to Afro-Cuban music and I feel it very deeply? Why do I listen to samba and I feel it? It's related to me, you know? Yeah, and, you know, soul, but bringing that word back around, soul music, soul food. Exactly, exactly. And I think that there's something uh, inside in my anatomy that remembers 
um, and recognizes my my distant relative. Yes, it sounds like you uh, found some treasures over there in Africa, <laughs> some hidden treasures, oh, well if, if I may. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so since we're here, I think we might as well transition. So that, you know that that's the name of um, your latest project, some hidden treasure. And um, you know, I, I saw a video. You described the uh, the project as giving yourself permission to say the things that you weren't allowed to say. And you know, as as we kind of touched on um, when we spoke um, earlier. I thought of two different uh, things. You know, my, my mind went in two different directions when I heard you say that. A, what are those things that you felt like um, you, you know, weren't allowed to say? And B, what are the structures? What or who was actually determining that you weren't allowed to say those things? I, I think I'd like to just offer you the space to um, take us in, in whichever direction you <laughs> would like to go in with that. Sure. Um Right, so my home base is classical music, and uh, classical music is an art of, um, of, well, naturally of performance, but also in, it's an interpretive art. Mm. Uh, so I never, I was always fascinated with the human instrument and wanted to maximize my, my knowledge and gain as much mastery over it as I could, which I'm still working on. Um, but it never occurred to me to own my own creative direction, um, where in classical music, often we are contractors, we fit into a greater, a larger whole, which is a beautiful mm. practice. Um, so there's the one part of, of wow, if I, if I had the opportunity to create my own world, my own little, um, you know, my own set of compositions, what would I make? And what would I offer? What am I interested in saying? And what I found that I was interested in saying with things that I felt I was not, I was ill-advised to say, right, in society, because we've been socialized out of uh, things that cause friction, for lack of a better word. Sure. Um, so uh, for me, uh, my identity, which I was very much interested in expressing for the first time musically, uh, it comes in three places, right, as a woman, as an African-American and then further as an African-American woman, which implies its its own set of, of different kind of responsibilities and, and socializations. Um, so with my record, I wanted to take a shot at um, and saying the things that I, I wasn't meant to say. I wanted to acknowledge uh, my womanhood. I wanted to speak very assertively in and around my womanhood. Uh, in a way that wasn't so much suggestive as it was just firm and strong. Um, I also wanted to speak about the nature, my my experience with African-American or being in relationships as an African-American woman, uh, black relationships, for lack of a better term. Um, there's a part in Soul that I was very excited about um, where I describe uh, building a reconstruction uh, for for my partner and I right, a new reconstruction, because what has been developed in, in our country now, as we are <laughs> being reminded of quite often, is not entirely equal. Um, so I wanted to investigate that, that kind of, that acknowledgement of uh, what we often stand up against as, as people of color in this country, and, and then again as a woman, as I mentioned, um, 
And then also, you know, the natural things you want to talk about love and heartbreak that happens too. Uh, but that's a little easier right. and a little more accepted. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, we um, and de- definitely on the classical side of things, and I would I would even say in other genres. You know, um, in these in, in this past time, uh, we've seen more equity and more attention put on music. Um, by women, you know, music, music written by women. But um, as it's not explored all that often, you know, the exploration of the perspectives of black women often, you know, falls by the wayside, you know, and, and, and you, you know, are, are very vocal about not just affirming yourself as a woman, but as a black woman, a member of the African diaspora. How is, uh, you know, how, how is that really different? What, how, what, what can you say uh, concerning the experiences of uh, black women in a contemporary way and a historical way um, that, that really, um, you know, gives it uh, that, that, uh, that status of deserving, that extra bit of attention, that extra bit of exploration? Right. And that, that is a, a, a charged question. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see here. I, I think the easiest way for me to start it would be here, speaking from the U.S. perspective. Um, the black women in this country, for we, we've raised this country, quite literally. Mm. Uh, we raised uh, the founding forefathers who we point to in our Constitution. Uh, we raised their children, uh, their young men, their men. Uh, we nurtured, we, we made food, we changed diapers, we, we taught. My grandmother, my grandmother raised uh, uh, children um, from the wealthy white side of town. You know, that's, uh, that's what we have done. Um, so I, I think that there, I think that that expectation in and around black women, this kind of like superhero uh, expectation of us remains uh, and that also of being the caregiver and and being so strong and taking care of all others uh, before she takes care of herself uh, I wonder if uh, I, I wonder if there is a musical implication there because you know again you mentioned how um, in the world of classical it's about being in service to something bigger being in service to um, the composer do, do you see connections there you know between you know black women raising literally and figuratively so much of America black women like Leontine Price spreading the joys of Western classical music to so many people but on both sides of that that conversation the the actual ownership not quite being there that is that is interesting I, I don't know that I would have gotten there myself uh, <laughs> but that's a really interesting question um, right there's a there's a huge string of mighty african-american sopranos who who carried the the line that's so interesting uh, right I mean like the late a, like the late Jesse Norman Jesse or Norman, like Martina, Kathy Battle Kathy Battle Martina Arroyo naturally Miss Price Grace Bumbry uh, the list is huge um, and uh, I wow <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm honestly I'm amazed by that question because I wouldn't have uh, gone there but that's a that's a good one food for thought but but I, but I hope you feel um, ownership over what you create oh, in, yeah. in spite of that reality. Oh, absolutely. That's, uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make something that was from my own mind and in service of my mind, right? Like I, I didn't make anything um, to fit into any bucket or anything that was expected of me. I made what I imagined 
Um, and what was interesting to me, and that spoke to my unique reality um, as a musician and as an African-American woman, as an American. Um, so, yeah. What, what can people expect to hear um, when they go and purchase some hidden treasure um, and, and sit down and just spend some time with it? What, what would you encourage people to sort of understand about um, what they're about to hear as it applies um, to your process? Is there, a, is there a life story there? Are there experiences there that people are going to get to uh, understand a little bit more about? Absolutely. I'm uh, definitely a uh, young woman contending with... Uh, what it is to be a young woman in this country uh, mm. in search of love and happiness and, and all those things um, in search of her own strength as well. Um, I was also very interested in subtly exploring a, a range of African-American music. Um, and I would think if anything that I would hope for the listener uh, to pay attention to is actually to have some fun with the, uh, the playfulness of that exploration. I, I wanted to make something um, that hinted at a lot in a very short period of time. But searching for, you know, the, the things that you're mentioning, searching for love, searching for um, those, again, some hidden treasure. I, I love that phrase. I, I'm Thank finding you. myself saying it a lot. You know, <laughs> searching for those things isn't always fun. I mean, in my experience anyway, more often than not, the exploration of those things, the exploration and the search for that peace um, can be everything but fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, okay, so there's two parts that I would respond to this uh, question. The search is not fun, but it is enlivening. Mm, and it gives, enlivening. Yes. Uh, it, it lends so much um, and reveals so much. And I think always in hindsight, and, and often for me, even sometimes recent hindsight, uh, you find that you're so much better for it. Um, there's, uh, your wisdom becomes greater, right? Um, my understanding of the world that I live in uh, becomes ever so slightly stronger. And to me, that's, uh, that is a treasure and it's very valuable. Um, and then also, uh, you know, when I was naming the album, um, uh, that some hidden treasure was two part actually. Uh, so one, it was, um, there was a, you know, a, a wonderful young man who I loved very much. Um, and he revealed himself to me, uh, and, and everything I found out about him, I was like, it was just absolutely in awe of this uh, beautiful person. Um, and I called him a treasure. Uh, but then also, uh, when I think about the music that I grew up listening to and, and the things that I most enjoy about music, I love discovery. I love going back time and again and finding something new. To me, that's the best part. Uh, and I think that in this culture that we live in from like a mass culture uh, perspective, I think that we kind of miss out on that. Uh, we kind of, we want um, uh, recognizable morsels uh, all the time out of our music. Uh, but I wanted to make something that could be discovered and investigated and um, and found anew all the time. I'm glad to hear um, your your positive take on on finding uh, that young man and him revealing <laughs> himself to you because you know it, it seems like every song is about heartbreak and about how how men just don't treat women right, you know and 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 it's so encouraging for me to to hear that. Um, part of your story. What, what, what sorts of 
um, male um, affirmations or or even validations, for lack of a better word, um, have you experienced as it relates to this project? Is is there a uh, you know if if we're going back to the analogy of food, is is there a little male seasoning in this dish? <laughs> Oh, you mean in terms of the the uh, composition or the creation process? The the creation process and and also you know how it lives today in its completed form. Yeah, uh, well, I um, I work with a, a band of wonderful, brilliantly talented uh, male players. Every single one of them uh, gives so much, um, and I was. This is an interesting thing to describe, but I. I always, when I was younger, I always imagined that if, if I ever had the chance to make something musical, I wanted it to be gutsy in the way that, I used to say to myself, in the way that men get to make music. Mm. Um, which is a very complicated thing, I think, to confess now, um, especially as we're in this very kind of assertive, um, pro-feminist environment that we live in. And of course, I would define myself as fitting in that as well. Uh, but I do think that there's... Um, uh, a ballsiness, for lack of a better word, that men get to play with uh, more often in music um, uh, than women are recognized for for making. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to make something with grit and something that wasn't always pleasing, you know, mm. that that lived from the gut. Not um, always polite, even. Ex that's the way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I would I would uh, argue that for male seasoning. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, let's see in the in the in its afterlife. Now that it lives out in the world, I think that that remains to be um, uh, seen. It's still pretty new out in the world. Uh, it'll just be like I guess three months. Uh, at this time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'll say TBD for that one. Sure, sure. And and the band that you've described, um, I, I suppose those are the excursions. How, how did you uh, how did you meet them? Were they a fully formed band uh, when you began collaborating? No, no. I just called them. I, 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 I collected them and I called them the excursion. <laughs> they oh. went along with the with me and with that. And where did that name come from? Um, once again, the some hidden treasure, the search. I love discovery, uh, and I, I, I don't even know exactly what I'll do next. Um, I want to find out what I, I am going to do next, and that's where I want my music to live. Um, this kind of sense of exploration, and I would love to create a an environment of trust with my audiences to just go there with me. Yeah, um, so, yeah. And, and the band as well. So, so you know, back back um, to to that initial question about the project. You know, uh, giving yourself permission to say the things that you didn't always feel like you were allowed to say. Can you point us to um, a specific song, a specific track that really embodies that energy, that attitude of going against the grain and affirming yourself in the way that uh, you've decided to, musically speaking? Absolutely. Um, if I were to point to one, I would say it would be uh, the song called Soul, which uh, is probably uh, no surprise considering that I've repeatedly talked about soul music. Yeah. Um, soul is a three, actually, I guess a four part song with three distinct structures. I wanted to, 
I wanted to describe the kind of the fragmented reality uh, of, of being human. I wouldn't even say of being a woman. Uh, you know, sometimes I feel this way, sometimes I feel that way. I wanted to articulate that musically in a creative and once again gutsy kind of way. Uh, and then further, I wanted to uh, specify that experience um, as coming from the woman's perspective in a relationship. Uh, so I wanted uh, there to be a moment of, of uh, seduction, right? Uh, mm. And I wanted that to be very clear musically. I wanted to articulate that. Uh, I wanted to hear it from the bass line. In the, in the guitar, I wanted to definitely hear it in my uh, vocal performance. Um, then I also, I wanted it to uh, once again be very affirmative. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of... Um, uh, African kind of like uh, respiration, I'll say, you know, uh, that I, I do, which I was very excited about um, in a rhythmic capacity. Um, and those are all there to kind of point to this uh, kind of bold affirmative statement from the woman's perspective. Then I also wanted there to be a moment of, hey, I need space. I need me time. Uh, I need to, to be me. Uh, then I also, I, once again, I wanted to serenade. Uh, so we return to the seduction and then finally we end in the serenade where um, I attempt to describe my understanding of my partner's experience in this world as, you know, in this case, I was speaking uh, to a partner who's an African-American man. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, describing uh, the the challenges of that reality, but the beauty that we hold together in that partnership. Oh my goodness, that that's that that's really uh, incredible for me to hear. And you know, as we as we wrap up here, and I listen to your words, I can't help but to you know think back again to that concept of the appreciation of um, black music. You know, uh, I, I think about your appreciating the black folks around you, and again, the black music that that you grew up with. What would be um, your way of selling this project? Uh, to, to people who might not know how to um, appreciate this as a black music that stands equally beside the um, classically infused uh, black compositions of Florence Price, William Grant Still, folks who are interested in some of the artists you mentioned earlier, like uh, Anita Baker, folks, you know, that live in the world of Fela Kuti and, and, and those people. How, how, do you, how do you convince someone that a project like this sits equally and deserves equal appreciation, not just during Black Music Appreciation Month, but, you know, in, in the world of music in general? Mm. Um, I will first, I would introduce them gently I, <laughs> with uh, my song that has strings on it. <laughs> Oh, and strings okay. of harp, right? I, a, a gentle, a gentle coaxing. Uh, but then also, I think uh, when I when I think about myself as an artist and what drives me um, as an artist, I from a pretty young age, and in, in terms of my introduction to classical music, I was very, very. I wanted to be a part of that lineage. I just wanted to be a part of the line. I just wanted to accept the torch and pass it to the next one. Hmm. Um, that's something that's very important to me. And, and I have taken the time, I have done my work as a vocalist, uh, as a soprano, 
Um, and I think that it is very important that we, uh, you know, classical music especially, uh, is tending towards, trending towards being a, a repertory uh, practice. Uh, but I think that it's important to remember that we can continue to take steps forward. Um, and so when I, when I describe my music, and especially this being my first effort, my first uh, set of original compositions, uh, there, I think that we need to give artists permission to explore and to find things, to find things out. Uh, we don't, that's not so much the, the musical landscape that we live in right now, which I find uh, troubling for um, creativity. How, how are we supposed to find where else we can go if uh, we're just, if we continue to make only um, what is expected of us? So when uh, making a statement, making the case for my record and my work, um, I would make the case for exploration and the case for finding something new and, and finding out who I am, but also contributing to the line uh, in my own way. That's what I'm interested in. And if that's your message to the consumers of the art, what's your message to the creators of the art? Because I'm sure there are countless um, women, black women, who again feel like that they are have been siphoned or feel like there are things that they can't explore or that won't fit into the the musical or other artistic uh, uh, you know platforms or, or rooms that, that 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 they sit in. What what is your message to the creators? Just make it. Just make it. Just make it. I wow. um, I, I I I still don't know exactly where my my this contribution is going to go. I know uh, what I'd like to do next, uh, but I'm still not even entirely sure, but I'm proud I made it. Um, I'm, I do see it as a contribution. It's an offering to this, this lineage that's all around us, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, 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 so what is next? What, 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 what's on your, what, what's on your plate? What's on your desk? Oh man, I can tell you what I want to do. <laughs> I want I want to find out what makes the African diaspora tick. I want to investigate that very badly. I want to find out about all the brown and black cultures of the world or as many as I can introduce myself to and be introduced to. Uh, and I want to find out how we expo ex express ourselves through song. Wow. Okay. Final, final question before I let you go, you know, to try to pull this around full circle, you know, you, you described um, the, the principal area of your music as soul. And then we, we found connections with uh, soul food. Mm. What, what, what are some of the, uh, I'm, I'm, you, you've made me hungry now. So, so what, 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 what's your favorite, when you think of soul food, what do you think of? You might inspire um, my menu tonight, cornbread. <laughs> Not not the Jiffy, but the homemade. I mean, I eat Jiffy too. <laughs> yeah, me too. the 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 Jiffy is quick, it's easy, it's sweet, and it's, yeah, there you are. It's good. Uh, what <laughs> else is there? There's, of course, there's anything that my parents make. That's always soul food. Uh, but I'm thinking about rice, collard greens, which I've already managed to describe in this uh, in this interview. Uh, what else am I thinking of? Naturally, some oh, some whiting, some good. Oh, white, yeah, the fish, yeah, yeah. some good fried fish. <laughs> Okay, I, I think you've uh, given me what I need to, to throw something together this evening. <laughs> Alicia, for folks who, uh, who want to learn more about you, want to check out your latest project, how can they do that? 
please uh, visit my website. It's aliciawaller.com. Uh, and please do follow me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Alicia in Vivo, which means Alicia Live in Spanish. Alicia, you yourself are a hidden treasure, hopefully a treasure that is going to be um, unhidden here in the uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months. So thanks you so much for uh, being on Triloquy and good luck for everything that's coming in the future. Thank you, Garrett. I just have to say I really so admire what you're doing. Um, so it's just it's awesome. So I'm happy to be I'm so honored to be a part of it. Yes, thank you uh, once again to Alicia Waller. It was uh, so great to talk with her. We'll have to have her um, back on the podcast to give some more of her hot takes and, and that sort of thing. But speaking of hot takes, it's time for uh, Movement 4, the Triloquy. So, hey, hey. Um, me or you? I'll go first this time um, because, you know, like during the first movement we were talking, uh, I, w- I, th- I wondered aloud, is it too late? Um, because all of these organizations and even, you know, sports teams are uh, uh, coming out and saying, you know, it has recently come to our attention that we have been behaving poorly. Even the NFL. Right. So, uh, and that's what I wanted to, that's kind of what I wanted to touch on. Uh, Roger Goodell made his release online. And my first question is, how much are they paying him? Because his living room looked well, like well. First mine. of all, first of all, we're <laughs> musicians. So who is Roger Goodell, and what what sports ball sport does he play? <laughs> <laughs> um, Roger Goodell is the commissioner of the NFL. Oh right, okay, okay, and and so he does this video where he's talking about you know we we should have listened, we should have this and that, and all I can do is go, man, you got wood paneling. And a couch that looks like you found it on the on the street. Look at your privilege showing. And that, and, <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, they, you're the commissioner of the NFL. You should go buy some stuff. What did you think about what he had to say, though? Well, this is the point because I was reading the reactions on Twitter, and there are so many people, famous and everyday people alike, are saying you had a shot. You had your chance. Screw you. We're not buying it. Yeah. Okay. So my triloquy is more of a challenge. I'm throwing down a gauntlet here. The first major orchestra or chamber ensemble that announces an all black season next year wins. I'll I'll put on my mask and I'll travel. To go see, they, but they would never. They're not going to do it. They're uh, not going to do let's it. Let's see it. Let's if they are serious and they and they want to do more than the bare minimum, which is to jump online and go, boy, we're su- we sure are sorry. Then, then show it. You getting in your feelings? You hitting the mic? <laughs> it's these new. It's these really handsome new. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the NFL, you know, and and, and that you know because my my triloquy had. Well, went along those lines, you know, more with the ensembles and especially the schools, the conservatories, you know, it's really there are all sorts of emotions connected, you know, to these days. You know, what's really been pissing me off is the fact that hashtag Black Lives Matter 
all of a sudden isn't some political statement that I'm I'm getting in trouble for 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 saying publicly Isn't or, it interesting? Or, or whatever you know it's all of a sudden this uh, sort of um, you know the the analogy that was presented to me when I was talking to this with somebody else was the blood of the lamb over your front door so the death angel passes over you mm. so the cancel culture. Uh, angel passes over you if on your website you have Black Lives Matter. That's the bare minimum, man. And, and there are even, you know, even the organizations that feel like they're taking the next step. You know, there was this one... Um, there's this one uh, school, I believe, I, you know, I would I would call them out if I knew. I don't feel like going to my phone and, and remembering who it was. But there, there was this one organization that had this petition going and um, and they were promising to put um, diverse composers on all of their concerts. OK, so when I went and read, you know, the fine print of, of the of the little petition, they were talking about members of the LGBTQIA community, women, composers of color, blah, 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 you know, so, so all of a sudden, you know, it's not, you know, black, saying, putting Black Lives Matter on your website or, or whatever is one thing, but it's another thing to sort of uh, push forward this initiative and you, you are still sort of backseating and sidelining the black people. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you are Yeah, that's why I said a black season. Right. I, I feel like if you aren't directly um, uh, trying to engage black communities, and that is both with the black composers and the music that you can that your organization can present that that will engage black communities in your neighborhood. You know, if you're not doing that, you're not even doing the work. So, you know, moving forward here, I'm really um, taking a look. And I said this on an I've you know I've been on a lot of digital panels. Mm -hmm. Everybody everybody's talking about it all of a sudden, which is you know again kind of my point. I feel like I've really been dedicated to this work and. And I'm glad that it's becoming a thing, but we have to make sure that it's authentic and not just for clicks, not just mm -hmm. for, um, you know, your ticket sales or whatever. So, you know, I, I guess my triloquy this week kind of mirrors yours. Um, but but I'll just go a step further and say we are definitely watching. We know the orchestras that recorded you know, the, the William Grant Still symphonies, the Florence Price symphonies or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we know the ones who are trying to jump on the bandwagon now. You know, we know the individuals. I know the individuals who have always explored these conversations and been doing this work. And I know the individuals who are just kind of um, jumping on now. So it is what it is. First orchestra to announce an all-black season next year wins. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it, Scott. Well, it, why? Why you gotta prove me wrong? I need. I need one. Of, I need one of you orchestras, one of you CEOs or whatever, to prove me wrong. Um, but I don't think I'll be wrong because y'all don't have the nuts, y'all don't have the vagina to program a full black season. Um, anyway, until next time.